Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. You know you'll be voting for candidates for legislature and statewide and local offices on election day, but what about the proposed constitutional change? Tonight, legislative leaders give their take on a proposal that would let lawmakers call themselves back into session. I'm Melissa Dablin. Idaho Reports starts now. Hello and welcome to Idaho Reports. This week we sit down with Senate President Pro Tem Chuck Winder and House Assistant Minority Leader Lauren Nekachea to talk about the proposed constitutional amendment that, if passed, would allow the legislature to call itself back into session. But first, our final two debates for this general election cycle air next week. On Monday, October 24th, tune in to Idaho Public Television at 8 p.m. Mountain Time, 7 p.m. Pacific for the Superintendent of Public Instruction debate between candidates Terry Gilbert and Debbie Critchfield. And on Friday, October 28th, Lieutenant Governor candidates Scott Bedke and Terry Pickens Manweiler debate at 8 p.m. Mountain Time, 7 p.m. Pacific. See the full schedule and find any debates you've missed at idahoptv.org slash idahodebates. And this week on the podcast, Dr. Jacqueline Kettler of Boise State University's School of Public Service joined me to discuss some of this year's hot legislative face-offs. Find that link at idahoptv.org slash idahoreports or search for Idaho Reports at your favorite podcast player. There, you'll also find our one-on-one -on -one interviews with statewide candidates who were unable to debate because their opponents declined to participate. This week, we sat down with Treasurer Julie Ellsworth and Controller Brandon Wolf, who are both seeking re-election, as well as Ada County Clerk Phil McGrain, the Republican nominee for Secretary of State. You can find their full interviews online, but here's a sneak peek at what they had to say. I, I love my job. I love being the state treasurer. The treasurer's office is essentially the accounts, the accounts receivable for the state. So all the money, it comes into Idaho, whether it's through federal or local or um, um, to state government through the state treasury. And, and it's really an opportunity to manage it well and elevate the communities out here in Idaho. I love the job, I love working with Idahoans, and I, I'm thrilled with how the Constitution got that you need to separate the Treasury from the, the entity that spends the money. I have had a track record of success. I first thing I did when I um, entered four years ago was I created a, essentially a bubble chart showing the the um, accountability for our dollars. You know, I want to see the Constitution says it should be done this way. Um, then we have legislative laws. We have committees that oversee it. We have different um, paid professionals that, that evaluate the different funds in the state. I have been successful in creating an accountability for the management of these dollars. And I, I feel like that I am in a position that I can work closely with local units of government in the future to elevate the Idaho Bond Bank Authority's ability to lift communities. It's, um, and since I've been in, um, the state has received a AAA credit rating. 
and I, when I first started, I established that the bond rating agencies would call into our state and speak to lawmakers and different policymakers so that they knew what it took to have good policies that increase your credit rating. And I, I've done a good job, and I want to continue. You know, I'm seeking re-election because there's a lot of work still to do, and I feel there's an opportunity we have uh, to continue to make Idaho one of the best-ran states financially in the country. And so I want to continue to do that. And of course, I hope we can talk maybe a little bit more about transparency, but there's a lot of work there that we're doing and continuing to work with, not, a, not only at the state of Idaho level, but at the local government le level. And that's a part that I want to continue to help uh, bring that forward. Well, one of the best things that what we've done is we've opened the books. And uh, I think Justice Brandeis said the quote, you know, Dis sunshine is the best disinfectant. And so what we have right now on transparentidaho.gov is we have a, a website that has all of the state expenditures. So we have uh, that are posted from the night before. And so we have every single expenditure from state agencies. We have all the state employees and what their pay rates are. But one of the key things that what we also have, last year House Bill 73 passed the, the uh, legislative session. And what that proposed, my vision was always, how can we take it one step further? And so one of the key points were, how can we get the cities, the counties, and the school districts data, and all taxing districts, how can we get all of their information? And they do a great job. And a lot of the bigger ones have their information posted on their websites. But if there was an opportunity, that means you're going to have to go to a lot of websites to track it down. And how do you compare? And is it apples to apples? And so that's what our team's been working on is making that uniformity and standard across so that you can compare a Boise to a Fairfield to a Preston to a Coeur d'Alene or the same with counties or school districts and so that's our big opportunity and from that uh, not necessarily to be a gotcha but how can we implement best practices? I am an elections junkie. I love this stuff. I've had the great privilege of working with Secretary Denny and Secretary Yasursa over the years, um, helping make sure Idaho's elections stand out and that when people head to the polls, they can have confidence that their vote counts and it counts the same as everybody else's and that nobody is interfering with our elections in any way. And I think we really do have a great system here in Idaho. I'm proud to have been a part of it. I think it's great the work that the clerks and others do throughout the state. Um, and so I'm really excited about the opportunity to collaborate with the clerks throughout the state to continue to build on our elections, especially in a time where um, you look over the last two years, I think there's been more uncertainty and doubt than I've ever seen throughout my career. And so we really want to try and build trust in the system and rebuild the confidence um, both here locally and nationally. And it's not because of anything that's happened here, but certainly there are those doubts. And so as I've traveled around the campaign uh, trail, um, it's been great to engage with people and talk about our elections, how the things that we do behind the scenes that people don't realize, and hopefully um, expand information for voters and access for voters coming into the future. I think one of the biggest things, and we've been we've done a lot of this over the last uh, year or so, is providing tours, uh, handing out information uh, to voters. You know, one of my goals for the upcoming legislative session that you know I'm probably revealing early is. Uh, to try and get more voter information out to the public. So specifically looking at trying to produce a voter guide. Uh, both the Secretary of State's office and the County Clerk's offices, it's the most, the most requested thing we get is where's my voter guide? Because we have so many people moving into the state from other locations that are accustomed to having that information. And I think that's a tool to both get information about who's running for office, like who are you gonna be voting for, 
Is there an election coming up? But it's also a tool to share information about what we're doing to make sure our elections run smoothly. For those full interviews, plus last week's interviews with Democratic congressional candidates Kaylee Peterson and Wendy Norman, visit IdahoPTV.org slash Idaho Reports or listen on the Idaho Reports podcast. Voters won't just be weighing in on candidates this November. Idahoans can also vote on whether the legislature should be able to call itself back into session outside of the regular legislative session, usually the first three months of the year. Currently, the Idaho Constitution allows only the governor to call lawmakers back to Boise for a special session. And while lawmakers have wanted to have that same power for years, the COVID-19 pandemic and the associated executive orders and emergency declarations issued in 2020 pushed that concern to the top of the priority list, with some lawmakers gathering for an unofficial session in June 2020. We believe that uh, there's been some overreach um, and the legislators have really, really, really tried and our constituents have really been on our backs. So we tried to convene today. We tried to get a quorum uh, that did not work, but um, but we are signing on to something and giving it to our governor just to let him know that we really, really uh, want to be a part of these decisions. I took an oath to the Constitution to defend and protect it. And when it is being violated, I think it's my duty to speak up. We have never had an opportunity to publicly say how we feel. We need to be able to make sure that the checks and balances of government are solid and in place. Little eventually summoned lawmakers for a special session later that August. What a week it was. On Monday, the legislature gaveled in to consider COVID-19 related elections and liability issues. Before the legislature was even able to begin, however, Capitol Police had issues trying to enforce social distancing in the fourth floor gallery overlooking the house. But despite the distractions, lawmakers were still able to get work done passing legislation that would require an option for in-person voting for all future elections, loosen dates for absentee vote counting, and limit COVID-related liability for certain businesses and entities. Tensions over pandemic orders spilled into the following 2021 regular session, with some legacy GOP officials defending Little's actions. It's not unusual during disasters that the governor is at the scene of the incident and they need a decision immediately. That is not the time that a governor should say, I'll get back to you, I must check with the legislature. The House kept its foot in the door that summer, leaving lingering questions about the precedent set for future legislative sessions. Special sessions, uh, regardless of the source, are going to have to be special. It's the check and balance system that we all uh, are familiar with, and that's and that's what we've done. Uh, it, it seems to, and, and we'll see how it works. But again, this is not about this is not a backdoor to a full-time legislature. Uh, none of us, none of us, none of us want that. After the Idaho legislature approved a Senate joint memorial on a constitutional change in 2021, the issue now goes before voters and needs a simple majority to pass. Joining me to discuss the pros and cons of the constitutional change are Senate Majority, Senate President Pro Tem Chuck Winder and, and House Assistant Minority Leader Lauren Nekachea. Uh, Senator Winder, I wanted to start with you. Why should Idahoans sign on to this proposal? 
Well, I think if everybody will think back to the COVID uh, problems we've had, even back to uh, when we had the floods uh, back in uh, 96 and 97, uh, when these types of emergencies come up, the legislature has a role to play in that. Uh, under the current constitution, only the governor can call us back for a special or extraordinary session. Uh, we were getting literally hundreds of phone calls a day from constituents saying, you guys, why aren't you doing your job? Get back in there, and we had no ability to do it. You know, the floods in 96, 97, there are Idaho voters now who were born after that happened. Um, wh why, why did the legislature need to be part of that emergency discussion? Uh, under the Constitution, we're the appropriating body. Uh, we're the policy makers. And we think that uh, when there are those types of emergencies, that the money that gets appropriate ought to come from the legislative action uh, and not from the executive. Now, why should the threshold be 60% instead of a two-thirds majority for lawmakers to submit a petition and say, you know what, we do want to call ourselves back to Boise? Well, you know, we're one of uh, 13 other states that have no ability to call themselves into session. Uh, basically, under any circumstance, there is a provision if we're attacked by uh, Martians or <laughs> a foreign government, we have the ability to come back in emergency session, but uh, I just think that uh, what happens, uh, the governor needs to be able to react quickly. We give him all the authority he needs, that's where he gets his authority primarily. Uh, and once that initial reaction is made, uh, there are a lot of decisions that need to be jointly made, money appropriated. We got a uh, billion dollars in the first round of ARPA funding. Um, that was federal COVID assistance right. funds. And uh, we had no say in it until uh, we were back in session again, almost a year later. Representative Nekache, I want to bring you into the conversation. Why shouldn't lawmakers be able to call themselves back? Well, this would be a departure from 130 years of tradition. And um, for all that time, only the governor has been able to call the legislature, legislature back into session with a specific agenda. And I think that's been a good thing because it's a big deal to call us all back. Um, and it's a slippery slope if we if we open up the, um, ourselves to special to special sessions all the time. We saw that Utah just gave this ability to the legislature, and they have called six special sessions since then. One of which had the result of just sending a letter to Congress, you know, stating that Utah lawmakers didn't like something that they'd done. Um, so it was really used more for grandstanding than than for policy. Um, you know, this, the senator raised the very good point about emergencies. We have to be able to react quickly in emergencies, and letting the governor just do the job is the best way to do that. When your house is on fire or you're facing a flood, the last thing you need is 105 legislators coming to town and going through their process of, you know, getting committees together. Um, and I'm actually fearful of what would have happened if the legislature had had come into session in 2020. I think all of those emergency needs that people had, the, the you know, business loans, um, unemployment, um, personal protective equipment for healthcare workers, I think all of those things would have been at risk. I think the reason the legislators wanted to come in was to stop those, stop the emergency response from happening. And that, that would be very disconcerting. Just as some, when the house is on fire, we need to have someone who can take executive action. And that's why we have the executive branch. And we have a code that gives him lots of authority. Uh, mm -hmm. But we thought he overstepped his authority in several areas, uh, appropriating a billion dollars, 
over a nine-month period. Uh, there wasn't any fire at the time uh, with those dollars. There were things that could have been done. Uh, Utah is a very unusual state. They can only have a six-week session. And so a they- A six-week regular session. Right, so they have a history of having all sorts of uh, extra sessions for things. Uh, but I also think that what we try to do with the 60% is it's hard to get a majority uh, between the House and the Senate on issues. Uh, we think it'll be very difficult to get 60% of uh, both bodies to agree. The amendment requires that it has to be specific agreement uh, on the issue that's uh, brought forward. So we put some really good sideboards on it that'll protect the public and uh, I don't think we're gonna go there and try and interfere with the governor or whatever, but I do think we have a constitutional uh, obligation and certainly the public thinks we do uh, because they ripped us up pretty good. They ripped us up in the primary, uh, they ripped us up in the press, uh, that uh, we were not there to, uh, to respond and to listen to them and to help them. You know, I, I'm curious though what happens if 60% of the respective bodies submit a proposal on something that leadership disagrees with and I'm thinking things like grocery tax repeal. How would that situation play out? Well, I think you know that's an interesting question because the way it is written, as long as 60% agreed, then the pro tem and speaker would have to because they can do an independent petition if they wish to. Uh, but it's still up to the uh, speaker and the pro tem to, uh, to call that uh, under this amendment to call them into session. So I think you're gonna see um, plenty of restraints, plenty of sideboards uh, on, you know, basically runaways or a wide open uh, type of a, of a session. Well, and the, I mean, you bring up the 60% threshold that's actually, I think, insufficient to prevent a special session that's just about grandstanding and not actually gonna get legislation passed, that's not a veto-proof majority. So if you have a governor who doesn't want to, who's opposed to the session and the proposal, and only 60% of legislators, they're gonna come to, they can come to town, spend money, and, and maybe they'd wanna do this before an election day and get some, you get their names in the press, which helps incumbents, um, but then you're, you're not gonna have a veto-proof majority to actually pass something. So I don't know why we would do this with a 60% threshold instead of the, the two-thirds. In my opinion, we ought to do it with a simple majority because we ought to be the legislature. We're a separate and equal body of government, uh, separate branch of government. We're supposed to be equal to the governors and to the judicial branch, but under the current constitution, we're not even close. And you know, when you start looking at bureaucracy, when you start looking at how does the legislature react to various things going on, there's no ability to do it. We're at the mercy of the executive branch. And so I think 60% is really a high bar. Uh, some states don't have any requirement uh, they just have to agree and the speaker and the pro tem can call them to session. Uh, other states have two-thirds requirements. Uh, but why would a legislator want to have a two-thirds requirement on something that really they are constitutionally obligated to do? And so I think, it, you know, to me, it's just a, a bogus argument to say, well, the, the threshold's too low. Does this push us closer to potentially having a full-time legislature, though? Some will say that, but I don't, the way we're set up right now, people have jobs, they have ranches, they have farms, they have families they're raising, businesses they're running. Uh, I only know of a few people in the legislature that probably would like to see it uh, year round, uh, but that's not gonna happen. 
Uh, and I think it could happen in the future as the state gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, but there's, there's no will, at least in the, the Senate uh, caucus and majority, to have a year round because we all have families, we all have lives outside of the legislature. And I really think that this would enable us maybe to even have shorter sessions uh, for regular sessions. And, and we could then deal with special uh, situations that come up in the future. Well, and, and that concerns me because I think the, the structure that we have where we do our business during a predictable time of year, the, that means the advocacy groups, businesses, citizens who want to get involved in the process have predictability. We um, you know, can operate under normal procedures where a bill gets introduced and then there, time passes, days pass before there are hearings and the public can go and testify and make plans to do that. We have a careful deliberative process and I'd be very concerned about shorter sessions and then sporadic special sessions throughout the year because it narrows who can participate both as legislators and as citizens who want to get involved in their government. You know, as the senator said, we have a part-time legislature and a lot of people have full-time jobs outside of that. It's hard enough to, <laughs> to get three months off to try to do that and I think it'll make it even harder for people to participate if they have to brace for unexpected special sessions around the year and we don't want to have a legislature that's just people who are retired or independently wealthy um, who have all that latitude um, but it's especially true for the you know just the citizens who want to have a say in their government when we have a special session often a bill can get a bill can get printed and enacted in one day when we suspend all the rules and so that means a lot of Idaho voters could be reading about it in the paper after it happened <laughs> um, and not even get a chance to have you know see the proposal in the full light of day and evaluate it and then contact their legislator and let them know how they feel about it. You know, right. and I think that argument doesn't hold water either because during COVID, we kept our capital open, we allowed the public to come and testify, our neighboring states locked their capitals, people were not allowed to come into the capitals to testify, and so I think we have always taken the approach of the public needs to participate. We even did on the tax cuts this time. So I think that, you know, at least to me, uh, the argument that, gee, we could be year-round, there's nothing in the Constitution that prevents us from not being year-round now. In fact, we saw it after the 21 session when the Senate signee died. In other words, we tried to end the session, and the House said, no, we're going to recess until December 30th. And that was constitutionally fine. I, and I, so I think, it's a, to me, it's just a bogus argument that, that if we don't pass this amendment, we're not gonna have year-round sessions. We could do it next, next year if we wanted to. I mean, it's, it's that simple, but no one wants it to be year-round. No one wants it to be full-time. Uh, the Senate has one full-time staff person and one full-time secretary for the Senate that does all the procedures that we do. So we're run on a very thin line. Uh, we're not a full-time. We don't want to be a full-time. Uh, people should be very confident that people want to go home and do their jobs. Representative, I'm curious because over the past few years, we've all seen legislative sessions extend because either caucuses can't agree on something or the House and the Senate can't agree on something, whether they're transportation issues like we saw in 2015, education, all sorts of different issues. If this potentially changes the dynamic of the regular sessions and lets lawmakers say, you know what, let's go ahead and adjourn, leave this on the table knowing that we can come back in 
June or July. Does that change the argument for you, knowing that it might potentially, in the long run, save taxpayers money if you're not extending six weeks unnecessarily? Um, I mean, I just like, based on how I've seen the legislature operate, it's the, the temptation is always to extend, and that's why we extended, you know, almost almost the full year in 2021, and came back for a reconvening that could have been an email, um, because the only thing we passed was it was again, as in Utah, I don't know, a letter to Washington D.C. saying we didn't like some things. Um, when we had the when we had to shut down for COVID in 2020, we we then extended you know, for weeks and weeks longer. We were, you know, near the end of what we needed to do for budget. And I think sometimes the longer the session goes, the longer the session goes, and the more special sessions you call, the more the more ideas come up. And we saw that in the 2020 special session where we were supposed to have a narrow, narrowly defined topic around COVID liability, and the House was printing all kinds of bills that were way outside, according to the Constitution, the scope of what we were there to do, and no, no one was stopping them from doing that, and it was, you know, uh, was taxing on the resources of our legislative services who were churning out bills <laughs> that were that were outside of the constitutional process and we we spent a week um, just with this with this infighting but and the power struggles and between I would just say that no one on the house governor. side stopped it the senate stopped it we told them from the very beginning that we thought the additional bills were unconstitutional and they're not within the uh, proclamation that the government put out to uh, call us back into session and we didn't hear any of those even though yeah. they sent over a bunch of bills and so that's the way the system's supposed to work uh, it's not supposed to be easy to pass bills and that's why we have two bodies uh, so that each one of them can uh, protect the public uh, and hear what the public has to say and I always tell people remember 36 18 and 1 36 house members 18 senators and one governor to get a bill passed yes. it's not Wait. easy we have about two minutes left. I'm, I'm curious if your view on this might be different if you weren't in the majority. You and, and your fellow members of leadership crafted this with a caucus that was on your side. That dynamic could and will change in the future, whether it's next year or in 50 years. Are you still gonna be on board with this? Well, you never know what happens in 50 years. Uh, that's why the Constitution could be amended, but I think the reality is uh, the minority should want to come in because they're they're hearing different things than we're hearing and where's the best place to deal with that in a legislative session so I think there's a way to provide that balance the 60 percent was the effort uh, the trying to define it very specifically as to what the agenda would be was our way of trying to make it so it isn't a wide open yeah and, and would, would your view on it change if there were more Democrats at, at the table, if Democrats were closer to 50-50 or even in the majority? No, because I want a structure that protects us even when, as, as the senator said, we don't have that restraint. You know, the senator referred to this restraint that the Senate um, exercised when the House was operating outside of the, the bounds of the Constitution, but that was based on the individuals who happened to be in the Senate at that time. And so I want a structure that protects us no matter who's making the call and who's, who's making the decisions. Senator, very briefly, if this proposal does not pass in November, what might the legislature do next? Well, I think they'll reconsider, uh, try and you know get more uh, education to the public and try and get the public uh, involved in it. Uh, right now, I'm 
being told by lots of people that they're in favor of it and they're voting for it uh, in spite of the opposition we've had. All right. Senator Chuck Winder, Representative Lauren Nekachea, thank you so much for joining us. As a reminder, we are off next week, October 28th, for the Lieutenant Governor debate. We'll be back on November 4th. We hope you tune in. Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.